Well, welcome to all of you for the fourth session of the Singapore Perspectives Conference 2021 Reset. Uh, my name is Matthew Matthews. I'm from the Institute of Policy Studies. Uh, if you have been with me in the last uh, few sessions, you'd have enjoyed the varied presentations and has provided a lot of insight. And our session today will also be very insightful and you will take home lots of key thoughts which will help us as we think about Singapore in the years to come. Uh, if you are joining us, just want to remind you that uh, we'll be submitting our questions to the panelists using pigeonhole. Uh, they'll be in the question submission section on this forum page. Uh, we also uh, want to remind you to uh, ask your questions in a respectful and safe manner. We would like you to focus on the issues at hand. The forum today is titled Identity and Cohesion. This is very much the heart of who we are uh, as a people. There's no question that Singaporeans understand that societal cohesion is crucial to our economic uh, future, actually our very survival. But we do have to deal with the substantial diversity that's presented before us. Diversities which are there because of our different racial, religious backgrounds, our migration histories, our different class backgrounds, and also the other array of diversities. While Singaporeans treasure our diversity, see this as an integral part of our national identity, also cognizant that identities need to be managed. Uh, rights sometimes have to be given up if we're going to ensure harmonious coexistence. But we've been able to maintain high levels of social cohesion it's not clear how things will pan out in the next decade. We take a leaf from the tumultuous social relations we see in other parts of the world and uh, the role of identity politics in exacerbating fault lines. There's quite a bit to be concerned about. And there's no question that the COVID pandemic uh, worldwide has widened fault lines. One that wonders what it will take to allow our society to continue to experience solidarity. For everyone here to feel a sense of belonging as one people, one nation, especially in the face of many pressures, some of which are external to Singapore. A strong national identity is certainly one way to protect our social cohesion. But we should think about what constitutes national identity, especially since many Singaporeans live abroad now. And we also have many who have come to us as immigrants and subsequently become naturalized. What really then makes a Singaporean? tied to physical space, connection to the local community, a set of memories, a shared uh, core values. We also need to find ways to navigate the relationship, relationships between people of different backgrounds, whether it's racial, religious, cultural, other forms of different differing backgrounds. And, and we need to find ways to be able to bridge these gaps, gaps between generations, between value systems. So quite a few things that we need to think about, especially if we think about Singapore in the next decade. Uh, we have two esteemed speakers and two discussants who will provide us important input for our deliberations. They'll both explain the challenges that we are, will be faced with, taking note of trends in the international and the Singaporean context. They'll also provide us ideas about the way forward. So our presenters, uh, Professor Joel Kotkin, who is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and also Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute, 
Uh, he's got a recent book, The Coming Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. We also have Ambassador Mohamed Alami Musa, who is Singapore's non-resident ambassador to the People's Republic, Democratic Republic of Algeria. He's also concurrently the Head of Studies in Interreligious Relations and Plural Societies Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. He's also the President of the Islamic Religious Council of Singapore. We have Ms. Fang Mei Lin, who is the co-founder of People-Centered Internet, which carries out global initiatives to make the internet more people-centric. We also have Professor Daniel Goh, who is Associate Professor of Sociology and Deputy Head of the Department of Sociology at the National University of Singapore. Uh, what we'll do is we'll hear from Professor Kotkin and then Ambassador Alami. They'll have uh, 15 minutes, and then we'll have our discussants share their thoughts. We'll have Melin go first and then Daniel. So let me uh, ask Professor Kotkin if you'd like to begin the presentation, sure. please. Well, of course, I'm speaking at a very awkward time as an American. Um, we've, uh, uh, we've experienced a very difficult period in, in our history. Um, and some of this has to do with cohesion and the identities or various identities that are really in conflict. Um, but I'm going to sort of surprise people by saying that I think that ultimately we'll, we'll work it out. We've, you know, I, I, I went to Berkeley in the early 70s, so I, I know what, uh, what a, a very contentious environment is. I um, actually experienced and covered the 92 LA riots. Um, and yet, despite all this, I think that there, um, you know, first of all, this is a very different country. Obviously, it's an enormous country and it has, you know, 330 million people. Um, and we're changing tremendously. So I'm going to try to uh, get into that right now. But if we can put up the, 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 fir the uh, PowerPoint, that would be great. Um, and, the, and the first, uh, if we go to the next, the first slide, um, of course, my, my vision isn't good enough to read that, but I'll, I'll, I mean, basically what we're seeing is that Singapore has a model, has something to offer. And I think that Lee Kuan Yew understood this from the very beginning. And there are things that you've done in Singapore that we would never do, it would be unconstitutional for us to do in the United States. Um, we couldn't say, well, you only this ethnic group, this ethnic group has to come in this percentage in a housing project. There are many protections. And, you know, having studied the history of Singapore, I think, um, uh, you know, Lee Kuan Yew was quite um, correct in having to do some of the things he did. We're a very different situation, but there's a lot that we can learn from, I think, from Singapore. Um, and uh, when I worked on projects, um, I had the pleasure of working with pe people from Indian backgrounds, people from Malaysian backgrounds, people from Chinese backgrounds, um, and it all worked out pretty well. So. There is a lot that we learn, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes Americans don't think we have anything to learn, um, but I think we do. And but on the other hand, I think that uh, there we are by far the largest uh, multiracial country um, in the world, um, uh, in and I think that uh, uh, and we have had more. We get more immigrants than than basically the rest of the world put together historically. Um, so we have a lot of uh, issues that we still have. So we go to the next slide. Um, so first, let's just talk a little bit about what's happening in Europe. Um, 
Europe is, has been historically a place that sent people to America, to Australia, Canada, by the way, the other two societies that are similar to us. Um, and, um, you know, I, I know them both well. I've done a lot of work in Australia, plus uh, my wife's Canadian. So uh, um, so I, I think that what's happened in, in Europe is that they've had a sudden and very large um, migration of people from all over the world. Um, they, it's also happening in the context of, of a diminishing population, very low fertility rate, and they've had an enormous um, problem uh, adjusting to that. Um, you know, a French person is first of all French, and um, you know, the a young uh, African immigrant is being ta taught in school our ancestors, the Gauls. Um, well, obviously, <laughs> that person their ancestors weren't Gauls. And, you know, we used to do that in the US. I do, we do a lot less of it now. We understand the role of the minorities. And if you go to the next slide, one of the biggest issues in Europe um, has been the, the tremendous opposition to, op, uh, to immigration that has emerged in Europe. We now see, you know, sort of nativist parties, um, the the you know, the um, you know the Front National in in in, in France, uh, the the um, the Swedish Democrats, the True Finns. Um, this this has become a major uh, crisis, and Europe's uh, solution has been basically to cut off immigration. And even socialist governments, like in Denmark, um, have been cutting off uh, immigration. So they're having a hard, a somewhat of a difficult time being able to uh, integrate these new um, groups. And as we well know, Europe has had a very uh, difficult history. Um, many of the people who, for instance, originally uh, came to Germany um, from Poland and, and, and Russia um, were eventually people who were, um, were exterminated. And you know that's not a very pleasant uh, picture. So Europe has a very different situation. Now, it's very true that 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 over if you look at history, England and France and, and the Netherlands have done a little bit better job. They have had people coming in, but never at the numbers that came in all of a sudden, uh, particularly as a result of the Syrian conflict. So um, not to say that we're the US is doing better, but it's a different trajectory. And the question of identity um, is is somewhat differently expressed. Um, and the one thing one can say about the United States at its best is that, that um, you know, as, as one British historian said, it's a nation born as an idea. It's not a nation born because, you know, my relatives came from, you know, somebody's relatives came from Plymouth Rock and, you know, uh, and my parents, uh, my grandparents came from the shtetl in Russia. I mean, there was, they're, they're still Americans. So if we go to the next slide, so, this has obviously been a very uh, tough year uh, for the U.S., and we're going through a tremendous identity crisis. I mean, the New York Times, which was once a respectable newspaper, um, you know, has has now, um, you know, had a, a a situation where there there is um, a, and I think it's really unfortunate where they've come up with a history of the United States as if the entire history of the United States was about racism, and racism existed but you cannot build a country by destroying your own past. It would be like in, in Singapore to reject the, the legacy of Lee Kuan Yew and then say, 
well, now we're going to do something completely different. That's part of your inherent um, identity. Um, go to the next slide, please. Um, the U.S. has gone through an enormous uh, ethnic change, and um, we've gone through a period like in my um, uh, in my mother's generation, uh, the country was about ten percent non-white. In my daughter's generation, her granddaughter's generation, it's going to be about forty to fifty percent non-white. That is an enormous, enormous change, um, and some Americans have had a hard time with it. Go to the next slide. Um, but I think that there are some positive things. You know, sometimes you wish that the politicians from Donald Trump and to the Democratic leadership would all go away, because I think Americans by themselves at the local level do a much better job of getting along than our political leaders and our media people do. Fundamentally, uh, we have very different attitudes. One of the ones I look at is interracial marriage. Interracial marriage was considered um, uh, appropriate by what, four or 5% of Americans at, uh, not very long ago, 50 years ago. Today, it's widely accepted, particularly accepted among young people. If we go to the next slide. Um, what we're seeing is what I like to call the multiculturalism of streets. I, I have to give credit to my friend, Sergio Minos for coming up with that. On the street level, you know, uh, my, um, you know, just even in my own uh, operation, you know, here at Chapman, you know, my my assistant is, is, is Persian. My social media person is from Pakistan. Um, there doesn't seem to be, at, at, and I, I hopefully other people who've been to the U.S., it's actually amazing how people uh, get along and how much intermarriage there is, how much interracial dating. I, we had a, a party from uh, my, my daughter's 15th birthday and it was the United Nations and it wasn't planned. It's just that's who she goes to school with here in Orange County, California, once a very white place, now about 50 percent non-white. We'll go to the next slide. Um, so basically what we're seeing is Americans as a group actually think immigration is a good thing. Um, they think it's part of our identity. Now, there are differences. Who should who should we accept? And I think these are issues that Singapore has to deal with, too. Um, in terms of education, how appropriate. But the reality is Americans are, are an immigrant people. The vast majority of people in the United States today um, cannot trace their roots back much before about 1870, 1880 in the United States. Um, the two groups that, that actually have the most degree of native uh, uh, experience are African-Americans and Native Americans. Uh, most white Americans are the descendants of people came from Ireland, Germany, Italy, um, Germany being the largest group, um, and obviously from Scandinavia, Russia, and more recently in very large numbers from Asia and Latin America. Um, go to the next. Uh, and what's really exciting, and I'm working on this right now, we've gone through periods where the immigrants clustered in a few big cities. Um, and in the Northeast uh, during the turn of the century, um, in um, later on um, in, in the late 20th century to places like Los Angeles um, and, and uh, West Coast cities. And now actually the largest group of immigrants are going to the South, which was one a region that had very little immigration. And they're going for opportunity. 
Um, uh, if we look at the growth of foreign born in Dallas, it's like 35% over the last decade. Um, and the foreign born numbers in, in California and New York are actually fairly flat. So immigration is spreading. Again, I, I believe that natural processes are, are the healthiest. Um, and, you know, if we could only, you know, take the uh, TV anchors and, and the uh, politicians away and let people talk to each other, actually, I think you have a much better situation. If we go to the next slide. Now, there is a problem. I consider it a class problem as opposed to a race problem. And in my experience in Singapore, that was also brought out to me that, you know, that the big problem you have is you have a group of people maybe who are not well-educated, um, are, are having a hard time adjusting, particularly to a very sophisticated economy. Um, that is the crisis that we face. The crisis we face, by the way, is not distinctly a racial crisis. We have the majority of poor people in America are white. Some of our poorest communities are in uh, overwhelmingly white places in parts of the, the, the South, um, in Appalachia, um, in, in some of the, the, the rural parts of the West. So the, the real issue I think facing us and I think facing other societies is really one of economics and of upward mobility or lack of upward mobility. Um, and I would focus on that more than just race itself. Next one, please. And I think this is what Dr. King um, recognized that what we really needed to do was to extend opportunity to people, that that was the best way uh, for us to, to proceed as a society um, and to address those issues. So I think that you know, it, it doesn't really help the average poor African-American or Latino in a, in a, whether in a small town or in a big city, if, if we have, um, you know, more uh, uh, quotas for kids to go to Harvard. I don't think that solves the problem. The, the, the key thing is, can we bring good jobs? Can we give them good education? Can they get skills? And again, I think this is an area where Singapore um, with its excellent education system, I think has, has really, you know, shown the way. And again, I think we can learn a lot from it. And then I just want to conclude with a little bit of a lyrical note. Um, one of my favorite poets, uh, uh, Walt Whitman, uh, one of the great American poets, um, and happened to come from the borough that that uh, bore me, uh, the borough of Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, he said, what is our goal? He said, America is the race of races. And that, that's really what America is about. And, you know, although I may not agree necessarily with the politics, the fact that our our next vice president is half Indian and half uh, West Indian is something that we had a, a president who was half white, half from Kenya. Um, you know, I think that, that, that we're moving in that direction. If we don't implode, America uh, can still offer the world a very good model. And I hope we get there. Thank you very much, Professor Kotkin. Thank you. It was very, very insightful overview, especially when you look at the United States. Uh, Ambassador Alami, would you like to go ahead? You have to unmute. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Um, can I my slides, please? Yeah. Yeah, I will touch on uh, three points in the next 15 minutes or so. Um, next slide, please. 
Christian, let me begin by saying uh, that identity and cohesion are existential issues. Uh, next slide, please. And it is Singapore's fortune that they have not been divisive. Uh, identity politics is not rife, and Singapore has managed the issue of cohesion since the early years after its independence. Uh, nevertheless, the problematics with identity and cohesion will never vaporize because race, culture, and religion are primordial matters that uh, generate perennial challenges. And furthermore, they are part of the social determinants that historically have been proven to be the causal factors for the decline and demise of nations. Uh, next slide, please. And this is where I'd like to quote the work of John Baggett Club, um, and, and he, found that he found that a time a cycle for nations to rise to greatness, decline to and perish is about 250 years. And this figure does not really change over a timeline of 3,000 years. Economic factors uh, cause the rise and social determinants cause the decline and demise of nations and empires. Now, the uh, fear of the, of the existential threat of identity and cohesion um, <clears throat> is deep-seated in, in Singapore's national consciousness. Even though the country is on the ascending part of the curve, is doing well, very, uh, very well, well economically, and we are far away from the 250-year time deadline that Glub talked about. Um, the threat comes from uh, internal and external factors uh, when the social fabric of Singapore is exposed to the uh, stresses of the conflictual forces and the competing pools, the strain of competing pools, you know, of when religions, cultures, and, uh, and, and, and ethnicities encounter each other and when they encounter with the state and politics. Now, let me go into Singapore now. Um, we will be as ever as, 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 as ever diverse as we can be. But a big difference is that the rate of diversity, the, the rate of growth of diversity will not be as phenomenal as it used to be in the earlier decades. But the diversity will, be, will grow in complexity. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, now, this is where um, I see that in the coming years, there will be an uptrend of this sentiment of exclusivism and intolerance, generally speaking, by people and groups, you know, who assert their superiority with regard to their uh, belief. And they ostracize and they tend to alienate those who do not support or agree with them. This is uh, what we call the cancel culture, which I think is emerging in Singapore, and it can be divisive. Now, this sentiment of exclusivism and intolerance, I think, will be made worse by what I see as a spillover, probable spillover effects from events in the region. You know, we can see the region uh, near and far from Singapore wrought with conflicts, serious ones, because they are in the intersection between religion, ethnicity, and culture. Now, I don't expect the radicalism or extremism or violence to take root in Singapore because our religious communities have built their religious resilience and robustness over the last 50 years to fend 
against all these evil forces. But I'm more worried about the silent killer. And these are the sentiments of intolerance, hatred, and exclusivism, which undergird uh, radicalism and extremism, which may quietly seep through our borders, get embedded in local teachings, and get preached to the local population. And uh, this will provide the legitimacy for the impulses for groups and individuals, you know, to be exclusive, to show hatred, and to be uh, intolerant, and thereby intensifying the competition for influence, space, and authority. Now, of course, the region, you can see a lot of, uh, the, there's an uptrend of politicization of religion, the theologizing of politics, a repression of ethnic minorities, and intolerance towards uh, cultural diversity. Now, but the comforting thing about Singapore, I think, Prof, you, you mentioned this in, in your, your preamble, is that, um, you know, we have a powerful term, a word called harmony, you know, which the state has effectively used for the last 30 years uh, to, in a way, as a form of social control to ensure social peace in legislation, in policies, and so on. But... Here, I'd like to uh, quote uh, Jacqueline News and U.S. Law in her paper uh, to the German Law Journal, which, is, which she argued that uh, the word norm has been, you know, the word uh, harmony has been socially norm. It is a powerful norm amongst the citizens. It is used as a kind of extra legal mechanism, you know, uh, whereby they can uh, uh, invoke the term harmony against groups or individuals and say, you stop being hateful, you stop being intolerant, you stop being exclusivist. So the word harmony has been socially normed, and that in a way gives it a kind of uh, uh, mutually constraining effect on, on citizens, on groups and individuals. So I think that is a mitigating factor uh, for this uh, uptrend of intolerance and exclusivism. Can I have the next slide, please? Uh, then I'd like to move on to religion state. Uh, still on the challenging trajectory, there will be very difficult moments of state versus uh, religion. Um, you know, as both state and religion grapple with this whole notion of problem space uh, used by anthropologist David Scott, whereby the central question in play will be where to draw the dividing, li dividing lines between state, the religion, and politics, and and we feed the whole ensemble of sub questions and sub questions. You know, how much can religion encroach to public space? How much of religion can inter uh, interfere in politics? How much can state get involved in the affairs of uh, religion? And uh, all this uh, because religion is grappling with the state and trying to seek more concessions from the state in the practice and embrace of religion. Next, please. I move on to religion, non-religion, which is, uh, I think it will grow bigger in the coming years. And I think the impact on cohesion will be, uh, will be, will be serious. Uh, people of no religion have been uh, neglected. They are very much on the sideline. And I think they are going to jostle their way in and get a seat at the table. Because they believe that even without religion, we are spiritual. The whole idea of spirituality without faith. And we have the wisdom and this moral sensibility to contribute to public reason and public uh, uh, morality. And public reason and public morality are the operating principles to ensure social order in the secular context. But people of religion say, hey, hey, hold on, you know, 
who don't have any sacred text, you don't have supreme text, and hence you lack the wisdom to contribute to public reason and public morality. So the tension will play itself out. Tension will continue and I think it will rise. Next slide, please. But the biggest threat, and I thought the biggest factor would be uh, the impact of cultural diversity on our cohesion. And here I like to use the typology of uh, Bhikkhu Pare. Uh, he listed three main types of uh, cultural diversity, subcultural diversity, perspectival diversity, and communal diversity. First, subcultural diversity. People of subcultures, I think generally they embrace many elements of mainstream culture, but they differ uh, fundamentally in particular areas of life like uh, sexuality, sexual orientation, lifestyle, you know, marriage, uh, family, children, upbringing, and so on and so forth. Now, they, they feel that, uh, you know, uh, they're they are part of Singapore and, they, and they, they, they are seeking for respect, for equal rec for recognition, and for the space. And, um, and in the name of multiculturalism, culturalism, they say that they are a critical part of the Singaporean identity. But mainstream people from mainstream society and say, hold on guys, you know, we also believe in multiculturalism, but we understand it differently. We, we understand uh, multiculturalism as being institutionalized around the, around the core or the centrality of a dominant culture. And all other lifestyles or all other subcultures will be located on the periphery you know, of the, of the uh, dominant culture. And uh, they are prepared to live and let that live so long as people of subculture do not undermine dominant culture or push the lines or the boundaries, you know, to seek and to challenge and to crusade or to champion for changes in legislation, policies or decisions. Now the state will never, will not allow the culture war to erupt. They were governed based on societal norms and in a non-partisan way. And then, uh, you know, of course the state has the power to even deviate from this. Yes, and when they feel that it is in the interest of the nation to do so. I think we need to keep uh, quite a watchful eye on the subcultural diversity. Next slide, please. Perspectival diversity and the primary, primary actors are the young people. And here, uh, young people are very uh, aware and they are very, they are very perspectival now. They have perspectives and opinions on a whole range of issues, including sensitive issues of race, religion, culture, even difficult subjects of gender, uh, uh, class, uh, uh, sexuality, uh, lifestyle, and so on and so forth, and um, and they and they are doing this not because they for the for the sake of knowledge or for knowing because they are socially conscious and they want to become socially engaged, and I think this is a phenomenon of what uh, we call intersectionality, um, which is emerging in Singapore, and also the phenomenon of book where there's much attention given to racial and social justice. So young people, uh, their aspiration is for the uh, dominant, for the mainstream society uh, to, in a way, review the primary values and principles uh, that govern society to be more aligned to what they believe and what they aspire for, for the new Singaporean society. So um, 
I think this will play itself out in the coming years and how serious it will be will depend on how well uh, society manages in the conversation and the engagement with uh, the young people. And of course, the young people are very much influenced or motivated by values and ideals, which mainstream society thought are quite alien to them. You know, ideals of, of, of human rights, of liberty, of freedom, uh, very much taken from, from the West. But uh, ideals uh, and values and principles which are uh, valuable but cherished by local society have a less important bearing on the perspectives of the young uh, today and moving on. Next slide, please. Communal uh, diversity. Uh, very much said, established, because I think uh, this is uh, a diversity of the established, well-organized communal, uh, community, ethnic community, communities in Singapore, and also the, the immigrant communities which have established themselves in Singapore. I think Singapore's multiculturalism has a bandwidth to absorb you know, and to embrace uh, such a wide range of uh, diversity. And I think generally Singaporeans uh, open and, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to embrace the ethnic other. That means if you are Chinese or Malay, you are, and you are quite generally embracing of the non-Malays. And also they are quite welcoming of the cultural other, uh, who are the uh, foreigners or the new arrivals. But, I think there's a big qualifier. And here I'd like to state that I think it's very much economic. You know, uh, Prof, you mentioned Martin Luther King's, uh, that, that resonated very much with me. I think it's very much economic driven. Uh, we need the economic prosperity to hold the country together. We need the economic wealth, you know, to, for national unity, national solidarity and social cohesion. Uh, I think without that, it's difficult to hold the country together. And I think the pandemic has shown this. Uh, but I'm glad to also say that the uh, latest uh, figures from the public sector shows that uh, income has risen all around, especially the bottom 20%, the 20%, the low, the lowest 20 percentile, their income has risen faster than the median. And also the Gini coefficient has uh, reduced to less than 0 0.4. And I think this will have positive uh, impact or bearing on inter ethnic intercommunal relations. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, no, how, however, um, I think there are segments within society that uh, feel deprived, uh, feel left out, you know, uh, feel disadvantaged. And the uh, social divides are not only along conventional or traditional lines of income levels, but new emerging social stratifications, you know. Uh, Technology, technological competencies, whether you're digitally literate or digitally literate, or whether you're technologically re well resourced, whether you are PC owning family or uh, PC deprived family, and of course, this local and foreign divide. So I think these are the kind of social uh, uh, divisions, uh, emerging ones that will have uh, an, an impact to deepen the social uh, fault lines. But of course, uh, the, our idea, our dream of becoming a truly inclusive Singapore has not materialized and uh, uh, it's still a work in progress and there are numerous initiatives to achieve a leveling up of our society. A little bit on national identity, this is a contested idea. You know, in the early, in the 80s and 90s, you know, people uh, uh, challenged this and say, you know, there's no such thing as 
national identity attached to geography or to a time-bound or space-bound economy. Um, and, the, and the adage that, that we always hear is that we are global citizens. You know, the world is a global village. Uh, we, are, uh, we are part of the global economic playing field. You know? so, but I think the events of the last few years and the trends of rising populism, xenophobia, economic nationalism has in a way made people rethink and I think there is a kind of return to a more conventional, more traditional understanding of national identity tied to geography, defending your national sovereignty or national territorial rights and so on. Second, uh, a sense of community tied to a community and where social stability is important. And finally, of course, uh, economy, which is tied to a national economy uh, for, for your prosperity as well. So national identity, I think post-pandemic, uh, I think there will be a rethink. I think there will be changes and uh, uh, it's something which we need to look at. Next slide, please. And I'd like to end off um, with three ideas for the future because I see that diversity is going to be complex. Um, and uh, if nothing is done, uh, I'm afraid that the Fed will be towards the social or polarization of society. And I think just like how we did well in terms of harmony, uh, social norming of harmony uh, over the last 30 years, you know, to fend off, uh, uh, to, to, to achieve harmony, I think that we need to try to get our Singaporeans and society to be, to, to, you know, preserve the spirit of openness, of humility, to learn from each other. The, the, the spirit to, to, to mutually benefit from each other. This whole idea of principle of mutuality. Uh, and of course, this, all these spirits are embodied in the whole idea of dialogue. And I am I am a firm believer of dialogue. And I like to see Singapore in the next 10, 20 years, you know, move towards to be a dialogical society. Let us socially norm dialogue socially non-dialogue, and I think this is a good panacea or good antidote towards uh, social polarization. Second, uh, I'd like to suggest, and this was to think together, is we have a good model of secularism that works for us, very pragmatic way of governing society, and Singapore's uh, secularism, uh, the essence is, you know, it's an eclectic model, you know, no, no fixed typology of Singapore secularism, its essence comes from wide range of types of secularism. And I think we, we can, and I think we want like to, I mean, we, we can challenge ourselves here to further enrich or further strengthen our secularism model to give religions and the collectivity of beliefs space in the political realm. You know, this rich diversity of religions, cultures, and beliefs have a role to play to contribute and enrich our public morality and public uh, 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 reason. And for a start, probably a voice in parliament, you know, that uh, say, you know, the religion sector being given a voice in parliament through the nominated member of parliament team. And finally, of course, um, we are living in a world of unknown, unknown scenario planning. I don't think it's fully effective. I think we need to find a tool to develop frames of mind amongst the citizens, you know, so that with frames of mind, give it the size, people the psychological reflexes to encounter a very difficult world, world coming, uh, moving on, 
when you know unknown unknowns will more likely to appear uh, today. So, and I think this whole idea of two frames of mind, which I that come to my mind straight away, this embrace of inclusivity and embrace of diversity, that uh, sets the frame of mind for us to stay together, uh, whether you have a tornado or a storm or you know a, a difficult times with unknown unknowns, at least we'll stay together to enrich the modus vivendi for Singapore that pulls us together. So I'll just stop here and uh, we can have our discussion later. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Ambassador, for looking into crystal ball and telling us some of the issues that will be important for us in Singapore. It's a great time now to hear from uh, Mei Ling and then from Daniel some thoughts from, uh, as you have heard these two presentations. Uh, Ms. Fang, would you first want to start? Yes, uh, I could go on for 30 minutes on what I've heard from Professor Kotkin and Professor Alami. Um, I want to talk about digital and the effect of the digital revolution on what is going on in identity and cohesion. This is one of the largest structural changes that we're going to see, not just in our lifetime, perhaps in two or 300 years. We are looking at a digital tsunami upon us that is changing all academic disciplines, all industries, and all our manners of uh, communication. So I wanna to touch on what I can see as an overseas Singaporean. Sometimes it's easier to see things that are hard to see from inside the island. I see the diaspora and the diversity of diaspora, creating a global community that Singapore could be using to help to surf these digital waves, that there is a perspective that the diaspora have, we as overseas Singaporeans. But similarly, the people who are in Singapore and around the world, they are all diaspora. The world is becoming an immigrant society. Um, the idea of harmony as an extra legal mechanism is particularly delightful to me because I think this is where Singapore is a real model for diaspora and how to integrate in society. I have a vision of four-part harmony, uh, people understanding that you can have different melodies and nobody has to, everybody doesn't have to sing the same song to have a rich life and culture. I ask us to look for the tapestry of weaving together the human fabric, that to take the digital tsunami as a way to move into what is the new human fabric that we can weave. And Singapore is truly a model for this. Um, global youth are looking for new models. And there are few multicultural models that are as well-respected as Singapore. President Kagame of Rwanda says he wants to be the Lee Kuan Yew of Africa. So as we look at this rise and fall of nations model of 250 years, we are still young. Singapore is still young, 50 years in, 60 years in. So we're still going up. What is the model of cohesion that we can actually help the rest of the world do? Um, uh, uh, help the rest of the world deal with these conflicts and the digital tsunami. That model is strategic pragmatism. That is the story of Singapore's economic development, adaptability, 
flexibility, the willingness to make hard decisions, but the actually the mathematical modeling of what the future could be, and then deciding, okay, we're going to find a way to navigate through this. We have to deal with the silent killers, but we won't do it by just waiting for them to attack. We have to come together and deliberately and with intention take the wonderful models of health, education, transportation, and share them with the world. Singapore can rise and be more cohesive with economic growth and help many, many other countries. Let us make President Kagame's dream true. Let him be the Lee Kuan Yew of Africa and let Singapore help do that. And not just for Africa, but the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Melin. Daniel, what are your thoughts? Hi, yeah, thanks. Thanks to uh, Prof. Kokin and Ambassador Alami for the great presentation. I think it's a timely reminder that, you know, uh, we still have that primary um, division or fault line, uh, which is ethnic identity uh, uh, with us right, in Singapore. Uh, and, and I'm saying this because I'm going to be a bit of, a, and I, I've heard a lot of very positive things that I, I, that I really agree with, right? The modern multiculturalism in Singapore and whatnot, which I've also expressed in my writings and in my, in my work. Uh, but I'm going to be a bit of a prophet of, doom and gloom um, and point out to three, I think, issues that I think will be um, especially prevalent in the next 10 to 20 years uh, with regards to cohesion in Singapore. Uh, and it all happens to start with the letter I. So the first one is intersectionality. Uh, and and I mean, this is a concept that has been uh, discussed in academic uh, in academia. Uh, but I think in Singapore, it takes on a peculiar uh, um, kind of historical uh, uh, gloss because because the ethnic identity uh, is starting to intersect with uh, gender, sexual, um, new religious, um, immigrant and nativist kind of identities uh, that's coming uh, up hard and fast. Uh, I don't have time to give examples, but I think I think many in the audience will, will be able to to say something about this. And 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 I would say that you know some of these intersectional identities, you know, like gender. And sexual identities and religious identities are actually becoming uh, more significant right, uh, than the ethnic identity. So, so post-ethnicity or post-ethnic identities um, do have another side today, which is, which is that it brings up other issues and other identity uh, politics uh, um, along its way. Um, the second I is importation of ideas, uh, identities, and the prospect of the culture war, which uh, uh, Ambassador Alami uh, brought up. Um, and I think I'm seeing this a lot more. And, and I, 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 he, he mentioned the, the young people especially are, are giving you know, into woke ideas. Um, and then also there are new kind of uh, new forms of identities that are coming, especially uh, LGBTQ identities and also new religious identities like uh, ideas from the Christian right, right? That's coming from the US, that's coming to, the, to Singapore. So all these, all these factors are actually quite important because I, I don't think it's going to remain a subculture. I think for many of these people who believe and who, 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 who buy into these identities and ideas, they are becoming mainstream for them. Right? So what it means is that there's going to be a much more uh, um, heated kind of exchange and struggle uh, over such ideas as, as the years come by. Uh, the, third, the third issue is uh, integration. Uh, I mean, we have not uh, been discussing this as much, I think, in this uh, forum. But I think the, the integration of immigrants, which make up about one third of the population, I think is a, is a crucial issue. And while the Gini coefficient is, is, is going down, especially for the, uh, the local residents, uh, the, I think the, the, the problem is that we, we do see a stark inequality that, that happens between, uh, within the immigrant uh, um, uh, section. 
right? And what I mean is this, right? That you have the more skilled, talented immigrants coming in and they're occupying certain spaces in the city. Uh, and that would be the condos, the private apartments, you know, and, 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 and residences. And then you have those who live in dormitories, which are the uh, lower skilled, uh, low wage workers. Um, in some ways, we have an issue, I think, of integrating these two, and, and they kind of also represent the kind of inequality within the immigration sector. Uh, I mean, I've already seen some cases in which, um, uh, whether young or, or middle-aged you know, Singaporeans are going into politics or getting political, right, because they're upset about these two issues. Uh, and they're coming from very different uh, uh, spectrums in, in, in the political spectrum, uh, coming from the more conservative, nativist, xenophobic kind of uh, spectrum, and the other one coming from a more progressive woke kind of spectrum. So I think these issues uh, will come to hit in the, in the next uh, 10 years, especially once COVID uh, settles down. Um, economy is back, the economy is going to be back on full, full, full steam. Everyone's bouncing back. You know, all these issues, I think, will come about uh, in, in a much more heated way. So we have to be prepared to address this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel, for that. The three eyes, very, very insightful three eyes to think about. All right. I mean, we have we've heard some excellent presentations and great discussion points from our STEAM panelists. Uh, it's time now to uh, hear some of your thoughts. I know many of you have already put out thoughts on uh, Pigeonhole, and that's where we're taking our questions from. I know some of them have, uh, you've got, there we have some on Pigeonhole, which has been voted quite a bit, 16 votes, 11 votes and all that. So uh, we'll get to the uh, top votes in a few minutes. But I uh, wanted to first uh, give space to the first question that was asked when I turned on the pigeonhole earlier, which was really a question from, uh, I think it's Matthew Thing. And uh, I think this speaks about, I mean, Matthew Thing's question was about ethnic discrimination in the United States, which has increased uh, during the, uh, in the last few months during the pandemic. Uh, and its relationship to political rivalries. And, uh, and I'm sure, Professor Kotkin, you can talk a little bit about that. But I think what's more interesting to us also is that uh, how some of that can play out. And I think this is an important dimension. Uh, things that are happening in the U.S. and other parts of the world, particularly in the U.S., have quite a bit of spillover effect in the rest of the world. And so I'm just wondering whether that would be something for us to, to think about and, and uh, deliberate. So maybe can, can I just start with Professor Kotkin and then anyone in the panel uh, can go ahead and um, give your thoughts. Okay, uh, first of all, in terms of what's happened with COVID, which I've worked on very hard, um, and we have probably, you know, we've tried to break it down. First of all, the virus doesn't care what race you are. I mean, that's not, that. what, what has happened is that certain groups uh, in the society, mainly poor people, people living in overcrowded housing, um, people who don't have education, don't have access to, uh, to good health care. Those are the ones who've suffered the most. I don't think that there, there's necessarily any greater or lesser uh, ethnic discrimination, but the, what the COVID has done is this, it's accelerated the inequality that is beyond any racial characteristics. I mean, there's there's some uh, a relationship um, in that there are more poor Hispanics and African Americans, for instance. But the real issue um, is, is one of, of of class, and and I think one of the ba basic things I think that May Lynn brought up, which I really think was was uh, you know because I write a lot about this myself, the tech uh, uh, the ability of technology to allow the upper classes, whatever their ethnicity, to work at home 
and to essentially continue their lives, you know, a little bit inconvenienced is very different than the lives of people who work in hotels or the people who work at airports or the people who have been um, affected, you know, particularly the small business people. And by the way, that is a very diverse group. Um, they've been hit the hardest and many of them are from immigrant groups. Um, you know, I know in uh, talking to my social media uh, person, you know, the, the Muslim community here in Orange County is incredibly entrepreneurial. They own all sorts of businesses. They're getting destroyed. Um, it, it, it's not an issue. Again, I, I think it's an issue of race and it, uh, uh, to some extent, but it's mostly an issue of class and even an issue of what way you make a living. So for instance, if you're a public employee or you um, are in a, in a bureaucracy where your job is, is fundamentally protected, or if you work at a tech company, you're probably in good shape. But if you work in a certain kind of company and you can be a, a well-educated, successful person, but if you're an airline pilot, let's say an airline pilot, but the planes aren't flying. And so, so again, I think it's more sort of structural and class driven. Now, my, my book and most of my work focuses on the issue of class. And I think that is where the, the divisions are. I don't think racial uh, uh, division is actually worse. Um, actually, even after the, um, the Floyd um, disorders, I'm actually the number of African-Americans killed by police is down from where it was 10 years ago. So I think the issues are fundamentally those of class. And I think the issues have been made uh, more extreme because of the digital tsunami that, that was mentioned. Because for instance, someone like me, uh, you know what? I, I mean, I, my, my living hasn't been really affected. Um, you know, and so I, but I think for many other people, it's been catastrophic. And again, it depends on where you are in the economy and whether you can be uh, able to do your work online. Thanks, Professor Cockett. I'm thinking more about the hate that, I mean, or at least in the early part of the pandemic, there was quite a bit of concern about ethnic Chinese. I think it's not just in the US, also in Canada. Uh, and of course, later on, with people talking about the China virus and uh, matters like that. So whether that has exacerbated hate or is just purely political, uh, I mean, and of course, some of the ramifications. I didn't know where Milling had any thoughts. If not, we'll move on to the next question. And uh... I think we should move on to the next question. Okay, great. So let's move. Let's move on to, uh, and uh, this is a question that I think is, and uh, maybe closely uh, connected to the whole idea about importation of ideas. Uh, and I, I was just thinking about. I mean. Uh, in the US, of course, when you have uh, much of the notion about the privilege of different groups, uh, which you know, maybe more and more uh, aware about. Uh, in Singapore, we've also had the idea about Chinese privilege, because obviously Chinese being the majority. I'm just thinking about uh, some of your thoughts about that. Uh, anyone had some thoughts? Maybe I'll first get Daniel, because Daniel has written recently about the notion about Chinese privilege, and you mentioned it just now. And uh, if anybody else would think about uh, some of the the usefulness of importing some of these ideas within the local space? Well, I, I think ideas have their origins, but ideas don't have that kind of, uh, you know, nationalistic imprint in, in that it belongs to a certain people. Ideas travel, right? So importation of ideas is not an issue, but I think it's the question is whether um, 
our indigenous intellectual traditions are able to absorb and adapt these ideas to make them relevant to our society, make them relevant to our history, right? Uh, I think the problem with the concept of Chinese privilege is that it is under-discussed, uh, under-specified. I think if those who want to advance this idea and to use it in the social sciences, to use it uh, you know, to, in public discourse to understand some of the certain uh, realities of like um, race, racism and, and prejudice in, in Singapore, they have to specify it. It cannot be something that is just simply equivalent to white privilege because uh, America had a very different um, history regards to racial relations as compared to Singapore. Singapore is a post-colonial country with um, you know racial categories that are left over by um, colonial structures um, by the British and the way they saw and stereotyped um, the different native people in, in, in Malaya. Right? So we have a very different history. So the question is, how do we then um, talk about, let's say, something like Chinese privilege within the history, the, within the kind of intellectual traditions in Singapore. And then that's my worry about importation ideas, that we do not focus enough, I think, on our own intellectual traditions in Singapore. We don't respect the, our previous thinkers and bring them up, you know, and integrate um, ideas that are imported elsewhere into these traditions. So I'm worried about the resilience of our indigenous intellectual traditions and, and the boring wholesale right, of ideas and concepts from other places that will be maladapted, right? You can't use it uh, in, in, in any way. So in a lot of cases in which people talk about Chinese privilege, they, they bring up examples that have already been discussed in, in academic works as basically, you know, racial prejudice, racial stereotyping, racial discrimination, or structural racism, institutional racism. So in terms of concepts, the, 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 the usefulness of Chinese privilege is not there because we already have concepts to describe these things and to explain these things as, as part of the issues that we have to deal with as a society. So, but, but if you bring in something like Chinese privilege, you know, you're borrowing the history of some, another society in without being critical. Um, and sometimes you end up with consequences like blaming all the Chinese in Singapore, for example, of you know a problem that is actually very very historical and very structural and 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 and, and based on institutional racism, which we have to solve uh, as as a, a kind of trans ethnic uh, as as a as a, it, with kind of unity, right? As one people. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Daniel. Uh, Ambassador Alami, do you have some thoughts? And then I'll pass it to Milian. Uh, you to unmute yourself, Ambassador. I think, I think Daniel has said it very well already. Uh, yeah, and. Um, I do not think that you can just uh, also generalize, generalize as such concept. Uh, it's very, uh, very loaded uh, idea and, and concept. And, you know, just like racism, you know, you cannot just say that, you know, we are a racist country or racism exists, but you really need to um, study the context, you know, the situation and the setting. And, um, um, then uh, I think the idea already becomes clearer, and, and your conclusions are more, more, uh, more justifiable conclusions. So I agree with Daniel that you know you need to contextualize, you know, to our culture and to our history. Um, I think that's all that I like to add on. Yeah. Thank you, Melin. Your thoughts? Yeah. So I really am agitated by this idea of Chinese privilege, and I really think that if Lee Kuan Yew was here, he would really stomp on it. Um, and and I don't. I and I think it would. It's legitimate to do that. I happen to have actually been uh, looking at the comparison of the Singapore health system and the American health system. Singapore spends twenty five percent less than uh, the American system, but people are bringing ideas from the American health system into Singapore, where, where Singapore is so much better. People in the U.S. would just 
be in heaven to have Singapore's uh, system uh, of health. Um, and, and so I think this idea of white privilege translated to Chinese privilege is, a, is, is a, not just a, a shortcut, but like lack of thinking. And I think the answer should be the dialogic society that Professor Alami uh, brought up that these things should be argued out and the, the, the intellectual scarcity of, of, of an idea like Chinese privilege, just using that as an argumentation uh, idea that you brought from another country that doesn't apply is ridiculous. Um, just, just, you know, I, I have to agree completely on this one because, you know, I think the idea of white privilege is, is, is absurd. You know, um, if you spend time in this country, you'll see lots of poor white people. Um, the and 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 you know, I, I love to hear white you know white privilege with from Asian Americans who actually have higher incomes and and uh, um, and education than than uh, than the whites do. I mean, I think we have to really. I think the dialogue is very important. And I also want to say the ambassador hit, I think, one of the places that I'm most sensitive, which is you have to have economic growth and aspiration. If people, you know, people are much less concerned about people's privilege if they're moving upward. But if you but if you're not going upward and then you can blame somebody else, I think it's a real problem. So I think that 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 this whole idea of taking the entire ethnicity, because I know even in Singapore, there are poor Chinese. There are Chinese who are struggling, particularly immigrants. Um, so, you know, to, to categorize whole groups, I mean, when, when um, I, you know, there was a, in the COVID debate, um, there are people saying, well, we shouldn't inoculate old people because they're mostly white and, 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 and therefore it's unfair. Well, old people are the ones who are dying. I mean, what, you know, is this really hard to, to get through to people? Um, you know, my 90 my year old, uh, 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 you know, mother-in-law, you know, maybe she should be ahead of um, the line from a, a very healthy 22-year-old person who happens to be of a different ethnicity. I, I think this concept is so destructive. Um, and, 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 and so, as a lot of my African-American friends say, disempowering, basically saying that you were born with this and this is going to define you all your life. And, and that I think is, whether it's the American dream or the Singapore dream, this has no place um, in a successful society. Excellent. Uh, let me move on to and take another question, which is quite a few words here. This is, uh, I think this goes to uh, really a final way when we think about society. Uh, I think we have 16 words here, uh, which has got to do with uh, a question about, is it more intuitive and realistic to expect tolerance rather than assimilation in a diverse society? Uh, should we actually work towards assimilation or be comfortable with differences? So, uh, I mean, I guess the difference or the, uh, I don't know whether they're polar opposites, but the Singapore model where you kind of work towards building tolerance, except the fact that they're quite people who are very different, or the model where we say everybody become somewhat the same and perhaps uh, that might uh, might work. So I guess a, a different model in multiculturalism. Uh, quick takes for that. Maybe you'd start with Professor Kotkin. Well, I, I mean, I think that, that fundamentally people, um, 
the the idea of assimilation has been um, and sort of the melding, which you can go back to Theodore Roosevelt um, talking about. There's no room for hyphenated Americans. I think that idea has sort of run itself out. Um, first of all, the country is infinitely more diverse. The second thing is the Anglo-Saxons are not necessarily doing better than a lot of the other ethnic groups. Actually, most of the ethnic groups that were looked down upon when they got here have done better than the Anglo-Saxons have done. So um, this idea of everyone trying to be the same, I think is, by the way, part of the problem. Um, and the ambassador probably be familiar with with the way that the, the French have, have uh, tried to uh, uh, put incredible restrictions on, you know, whether, you know, wearing a, a burqa or wearing a kippah. Um, I think that's not the way we're going to go. Because the other thing is this, we live in a global society. We are connected globally. So if I want to know what's going on in Israel, I can know that instantaneously. Um, if my... Um, when I talk to the local uh, imam about what's happened with COVID in the local mosque, he says the biggest change is now the people are not necessarily going to the local mosque, but they're listening to a, a particular preacher in Africa or a particular preacher in Dallas. So the, the, you know, the reality is people are going to be able to get um, new inputs that were not available. You know, when you moved from, uh, uh, from Sweden to Minnesota, uh, in 1890, your children were very likely to become assimilated in, in a way that they may not be assimilated today. And I think the biggest issue is we should let people choose how much, how assimilated they want to be, what kind of identity they want to be. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much uh, aligned with my own particular ethnic culture. I don't see anything contradictory about going to the synagogue and, and being an American. I, I, I don't think going to a mosque or going to a, a Episcopal church, whatever it is you want to do. It's really about letting people define themselves. And in a, in, and this is one of the good things in a, um, in, in a digital universe is we have that ability in a way that we never had it before. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, can I, yeah. Um, you know, the idea of one culture or national culture, you know, it's, it's a characteristic of pre-modern society. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense anymore of having, you know, a, a national uh, culture or one unified culture needed for stability. I think it's no longer valid. You know, let's look at us, you know, um, how, how did this nation come about? It came about because we wanted to depart, you know, from a system where there is a dominant uh, race, uh, religion, and way of life, right? And that's how, that's why we broke away. We said, no, that's not the way to govern society. We want to give everybody the respect, the space, you know, the recognition. And hence, multiculturalism uh, became a, a, a principal tenant, you know, of our, of our ideology besides secularism and meritocracy, right? And it's our whole idea is to, you know, uh, to absorb the diversity at the same time to uh, have a kind of common platform where people can coexist, you know, with the harmony and the peace. So uh, I think, uh, you know, certainly uh, multiculturalism is here to stay. I mean, if you don't have multiculturalism, what the opposite is monoculturalism. And I think 
And monoculturalism is uh, what kind of culture are we talking about? Is it a dominant culture? So are we going to be a Chinese uh, country or Chinese Buddhist, Chinese Taoist country? No, but we've decided, and this is part of the social contract where minorities have embraced, you know, the whole idea that we are equally respected, we have equal uh, place in this country, equal uh, <clears throat> equal recognition. So I think this is, uh, and of course, um, then, then how do you, why, what I said earlier about this model vivendi, you know, the, the common grounds, the common platform, you know, which uh, back in 1965, the first president has already defined a three, a three part, three part event, uh, models with Wendy, which was further refined by our current president, Alima Yaakob, uh, during the International Conference of Cohesive Society. But that's the models with Wendy. And, and, um, and, 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 and how do you then lift out the multi multiculturalism? Well, I, I hear Matthew said about tolerance, you know, but that's not enough, you know, that's the most basic level of tolerance. We need to go to understanding the intermediate level and even high aspiration of appreciation, you know, of our different cultures, language, religion, beliefs, and, and what you have. I think this is what I meant by the, towards the dialogical society and enriching our whole uh, common grounds as a people of diverse, of great diversity. We are the most diverse, uh, Professor Kotkin. Singapore is the most uh, religious diverse country in the world, you know, Pew Center Research did a study, and we are the most religious diverse country in the world, you know, so, and, and uh, I think, yeah, we need the common grounds. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, I just want to say that uh, it, it, interesting that this idea of assimilation is coming into Singapore. Uh, and and it happened, I think, close to us in Australia in the 1950s. And we saw what, you know, dramatic kind of, you know, racism that that, that kind of brought up. Um, and it, it, it's also kind of close by in Northeast Asia, where Japan and Korea uh, have at one time, you know, been, been very quite anti-immigrant and, and has always you know, been trying to assimilate the different cultures. But they've really moved away from that into more multicultural ground. Uh, we, we can possibly see this uh, in China today. Um, so I think it is kind of dangerous to you know, even consider it as an option in Singapore because we've always been part of island Southeast Asia. Island Southeast Asia, you know, basically Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, right? We are very diverse, right? With, of, and and with, with migrant peoples and diasporic people are moving around. Um, and and the and the main I, the main issue for us uh, since uh, independence has always been about integration. So you, you see in Indonesia you have Pancasila, uh, in Malaysia you have multi multiracialism right in their own terms, and we have our own multiracialism. Even the Philippines they have you no know, issues with um, uh, concerns about you know um, uh, making sure that you have the different um, uh, uh, regional groups right uh, coming uh, having a share of power and 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 part of the Filipino identity. Um, the the very identity of being a Filipino is already a mixed uh, identity, right? So, so what we have here uh, in Island Southeast Asia is, is a model of diversity and multiculturalism that, that, pre, you know, that, 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 that was already here for centuries, way before the colonial powers came, colonized us and, and so on and so forth. So, so what we need to do is to make sure that we have these, uh, in, these intellectual traditions of multiculturalism um, revive um, and, and resilient. 
Thanks, Enzo. Let me, uh, and I'm sure Milin will have thoughts as well, but maybe let me just jump to the other question, which is also uh, quite, uh, quite a lot of words on that one. And I think it's closely related to this big discussion about assimilation and, uh, or, or, I mean, I guess the idea about uh, uh, multiculturalism uh, or the Singapore version of that. And that has got to do with the CMIO model uh, because if you think about the CMIO model, it kind of enshrines the fact that we do have some kind of diversity and that's very much part of our population makeup in Singapore and CMIO. Of course, uh, you know, if we do national polls, we do find that some people, uh, this small proportion who normally would say, forget it, let's just abandon it. Uh, just have a Singapore identity. We don't want to to have any classification based on our different you know ethnic backgrounds. Just all treat ourselves as Singapore uh, or Singaporean. And then of course there are others who would say, hey, no, maybe we should be moving towards uh, a more nuanced approach. So it should not be C dash something else and a lot more of a hyphenated Singapore Chinese you know Pranakan or something like that. Uh, so there, there are a lot more categories there. Uh, so of course I think the question is asking about what would the be the preconditions to reconsider some of this uh, towards a more a nuanced approach. But I, I guess we can think about this a little broadly. So we'll start with uh, Melian, if your thoughts, and then anybody else would like to jump in. Yeah, I uh, think that, in fact, part of multiculturalism is really understanding that everyone has roots and our cultural roots are important. I think Singapore has as a model, and we need to reinforce this, is the appreciation of all our different cultural roots. It is in fact that grounding in your ancestors and where you came from and where they came from, and they might've been from all over, but you are the product of roots. And those roots will give us centering and stability in this new world of digital tsunami, because it's our human roots that will allow us to be cohesive and have a sense of real identity and where people can't just pretend or trick you into thinking you've got another identity and get you into being in conflict with somebody else. If you understand your roots, you know where you're coming from, you know what your ancestors sacrificed to let you be here, and you have an obligation to the people who come after you, those roots will keep us cohesive. And that's the sense of national identity that I see that Singapore has that allows it to be the Venice of the modern era. Venice is at the cultural crossroads and, and, and Singapore is at the global crossroads. It was at the physical global crossroads with shipping and now with business sans borders, these initiatives that are coming out, Singapore can be global e-commerce uh, crossroads. So we need to appreciate everybody's roots and bring together, bring us together in this human tapestry. Okay, so let's, uh, Professor Kotkin very quickly and then Daniel, we can't hear you, you're muted. Um, one of the things also is part of that is, is in many cases, a religious and cultural um, uh, inheritance. Um, you know, people growing up with no sense of, and I find this with my students, I, I find now that even though I'm, I'm not Christian, 
I'm teaching them about the the New Testament because they didn't learn it from their parents. And this has been a huge change. And I think that there needs to be, whether it's a religious background or an ethnic background, some sort of sense of principle that is something other than something from the digital era, something that has permanence, that has long-term effects. Like, for instance, my youngest daughter this summer, you know, given that she can travel, is going to Poland to see where her... Uh, her, you know, basically where, where her own great-grandfather uh, great grandfather, um, died. And uh, I think it's an important thing for people to understand that they have this, this tradition, this thing that's very rich. Um, I was fortunate enough to speak in Medina um, uh, in 2019, and you felt this tremendous power of that tradition. And I think that that makes our life so much richer than this sort of YouTube, uh, you know, TikTok kind of world. Um, I'm not saying that that's bad, but you, but if you don't come into it with any sense of values, how do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? How do you know how you're supposed to treat people? So I think that that is really important because the, the internet isn't going to teach us how to treat people. We're going to learn that from from religion. We're going to learn it from our families. We're going to learn it from our past. Thank you. Professor Go. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to add in that uh, I think the CMI model is, is, I think, not so much a model as, as, as a starting point uh, to, go, to get into the richness and the complexities of our diversity. Uh, we should not let it become a grid, right, which will become very rigid as, you know, something that is imposed on everything, to making sure everything must have CMIO in it. But I think it, it's a very good starting point. For example, I mean, when I start talking to, to people who come to visit Singapore, my friends from overseas, I, talk, I tell them about CMIO, Chinese, Malay, Indian, others, you know, uh, as the makeup of our country. And I start talking about myself as Chinese, but then I start going to all my family history and, and bore them to, to death, right, about how I was a Teochew, three to four generations ago, peasant family escaping, you know, persecution, uh, religious persecution, because one side of the family was Catholic, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So it becomes, you know, a very rich tapestry of diversity. And then I start talking about intermarriages, you know, between uh, like they have a Pranakan branch in the family, you know, marrying into, into Malay culture and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a, it, I think it is a starting point. So it's a very good starting point. So we should not let it become a grid, a rigid grid, but we should you know, let it remain as a starting point. Uh, uh, yeah. I think uh, we cannot run away from the fact that human beings are culturally embedded. You know, and uh, it's very difficult for a cross-cultural valid vision for a good life. I mean, we, we see France, you know, France, you know, they, uh, they, they more or less homogenize and say, no, it's only one identity, the French identity, French values, the Republican values. Uh, minorities have no, no place, no space, you know. And uh, is that the way that we want to go? Um, you know, you take away all our unique identities and what do we become? A Singaporean, what's a Singaporean, you know? So it becomes, you, you are, and to me, you're losing so much richness in the diversity uh, that we have. And I remember, Matthew, I think uh, IPS did a study on the CIMO, and uh, generally people can still accept the CIMO model, but they only ask for a, an extension or expansion of that model. So I thought I, I, I added in the word E, you know, C-I-M-E-O, no? E is Eurasian, you know. But of course, like what uh, Nadine said, Lin Fung said that Pranakan and so on. So, 
I think we need to find a way to accommodate people's aspiration to identify the way that they want to be identified with. Uh, so I think uh, we are, uh, in a way, we have been discussing this for, for a long time. Uh, we haven't really got a, a good formula for this, but I think we need to think carefully. And people who don't want to be ident identified with any cultural group, what, what do you do with them? You know, So uh, we need to think all this, yeah. I assume, Professor Alami, uh, Ambassador, you're not asking for an immediate revisit of the model, or do you think that we should start revisiting the model? No, I think the model can can remain, it can be expanded, but you find a way how to accommodate uh, the, a much more di diversity in the aspiration of, uh, of, of how people want to identify themselves. Great. Let me, let me move on to the other question about religious diversity, which has got quite a number of votes. Uh, and, you know, I, I want to look at the question that Carol posed, and also what, Ambassador, you mentioned just now, which is quite interesting. You said, well, you know, we should have a seat in NMP. One of them should be someone from the religious uh, side of the house and provide inputs from a religious point of view, which seems to be quite, uh, I mean, antithetical to the secular model, which we, we feel we've normally embraced, uh, arguably. And then, of course, Carol is saying, hey, uh, you know, we should increase the space because the increasing proportion of those who have no religion, and that's about 20% of our population, 20% um, does not necessarily mean that they have uh, completely, uh, they embrace an atheistic position. They might have various notions about religion. But anyway, there's a portion who don't have a very clear affiliation. They too should have a seat uh, in policymaking deliberations. So what do you think about that? Should we now uh, bring religious voices into the public space in these different arenas? Uh, what are some of the downsides of doing that? And what are potentially some of the upsides? And uh, somebody want to... Uh, Professor Alami, since you meant, you started off that first, yeah. maybe just if I can get some others to reflect first and then yeah. we'll get back to you. Yeah. No, I think uh, scholars uh, across the globe, uh, scholars of secularism are now questioning the basic uh, tenets, you know, whether uh, is there whether this separation between religion, politics, and state, is it, is it, is it real? You know, is it something which have been uh, wrongly uh, defined? In fact, uh, many scholars in the 60s, 70s believe, yeah, I know you should totally get religion out of public space. But there is a big rethink amongst us in, in the world of scholarship, religious scholarship. And they felt that, no, it's, it's not possible to take away religion, which is a Big dimension of human life, you know, away from uh, people, whether in even in public space. I think there's a talk about, you know, trying to bring uh, religion back, but there's a big qualifier though, because as you know, it can be divisive. Of course, there is another. There are books are written on that even uh, politics is religious, you know, you know, politics is religious. So I don't think there can be a strict line between. Uh, religion, politics, and state. Uh, I think there are overlaps, you know, and and I believe that uh, religion and I use the word collectivity of beliefs, you know, Matthew. Uh, religion and collectivity of beliefs. So it's a bit broader than just religion, you know, to be given a voice. And 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 I I know that the, the criticism would be oh you'd be divisive, you know, but the qualifier is that it has to be the language of the reason. It has to be language of public reason. You don't use sacred text or scripture, you know, to to articulate 
your views and convey your wisdom in the public space. How do you use a language that can be well received by all, regardless of religious affiliation or regardless of whether you are of religion or no religion? So it is a very kind of sophisticated way of uh, dealing with this idea, not just or, you know, a Buddhist monk goes to parliament or a Christian priest or imam, a Muslim imam in parliament. I think it would be, it would be, a, it would be a tragedy, you know, but we need people with the religious leaders with that kind of mindset, the paradigm, the frame of mind to be able to present to humanity, so to speak, the, the, the wonderful wisdom and the gems available uh, which are present in, in religions and in beliefs, you know, uh, to the public. So, I don't think uh, we should be too uh, anxious about that, you know, this would be the cause of situation because it has to be the right way of doing things. To have religious voices or not, let's have uh, Milin, your quick thoughts. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the issue actually comes up with algorithms in technology. It's a kind of a weird mix. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of a problem when you just take individual voices because you do not get the investment in the public goods or in the collective well-being. And so politics, religion, and the state give um, embracing things that give norms and protocols to allow us to invest and pay attention to the need for cohesion and collective goods. Without these ties that bind, we can end up just splintering off. And this is actually a, a real problem in computer algorithms today that we are seeing that computer algorithms are causing this divisiveness because we're not, we don't have these overarching ties. So it's kind of, I, there's a book called Algorithms to Live By that made the case for religion, politics and state. It's very interesting. Thank you. Uh, first, Calkin, do you have any thoughts? Sure. Um, just a couple of things. One, you know, uh, although technology is wonderful, uh, to have the world run by technologists is a frightening prospect. Um, as a friend of mine who worked in Silicon Valley said, there's no group of people in the history of the world who know less about the social impact of what they're doing than, than the techies. They just, just don't get it. Very few of them have read, um, whether it's the Constitution or the Bible or, I mean, the the the, the amount of, of of knowledge that they've had. Because, you know, let's face it, they're nerds and they they generally, they you know, they didn't sit around and read Walt Whitman when they were in college or, or, or Nietzsche like I did at Berkeley many years ago. Um, and so there, there's a limitation. But what here's a really exciting and different thing, and I'm not quite, this is what I've been working on a lot which is we're finding religion being redefined by the next generation. Um, the um, Wade Roof, uh, the, the theologian, uh, Christian theologian wrote about, he, he called it the spiritual marketplace. People go from one idea to another idea to another idea, and they integrate those ideas. So it's not necessarily the formal structure. The formal structures of religion are weakening the spiritual reawakening is growing. And if we can figure out a way to use that to, to increase the cohesiveness and the harmony of a society, 
because all good religious ideas are based on the idea, some idea of, of harmony, some idea of improvement. And so we're, you know, in the, in the future, when we think about religion and society, it may be much more of a complex situation, not just a rabbi, a priest, an imam in a room, each with their own particular text. It's going to be much more fluid, just like the way that we deal with race. Nobody has mentioned about the, those with no religious affiliation. I know that uh, Ambassador Alami uh, had some thoughts about that. Daniel, do you have any thoughts about that? Should we allow those with, I mean, no religious affiliation as a as a group, as a body, to be able to present, uh, uh, have a seat in policy making in that capacity? Now, obviously, the secular capacity is what all of us take, but very specifically, a stance from that no religious position. Any thoughts about that? Well, I was in Parliament for a few years, and um, and and I would say that you know I I don't I don't see the real need for any uh, deliberate kind of representation of religious or secular, uh, humanist uh, um, you know um, ideas or, or viewpoints in Parliament because they are already done, uh, and you know when it comes to controversial issues like you know things like abortion, the organ transplant, um, three seven seven A, like uh, and you you. The, the whip is lifted at least for the for the for the ruling party right so the, the whip is lifted and the religious um, ideas and you know viewpoints do get represented in the argumentation and the, and the, and the debate that follow um, in any case even in ordinary debates about policy I, I do see you know my you know when I was in parliament my, my, my colleagues my parliamentary colleagues do bring up their religious uh, viewpoints and standpoints and, and humanist standpoints too um, uh, very very eloquently uh, and very respectfully all right and so so I don't see the need actually to represent these and I think they are already brought to bear at least in parliament I think that the the, the more interesting uh, and important thing to, to to think about is how do we increase um, this in the public discourse right on the internet right on on other kind of public power for to have different religious viewpoints and humanist viewpoints um come to bear on on these issues and to debate them respectfully yeah thank you uh daniel we're running out of time but let me just take a last question we've dealt with race we've dealt with uh, religion uh and i think one thing that uh, is of concern to a lot of singaporeans has got to do with the issue about migration but uh shamil's question about covid and uh, has shown us how we need to improve our treatment of vulnerable or especially minority groups. And uh, one part is, of course, migrant workers and low-skilled migrant workers who uh, live in dormitories, for instance. Uh, uh, he's asking, what are some of the legacy factors which we need to decouple and to reset? Are there some things that, uh, in terms of our, our perspectives, our, our ways that we have done policy, there's something that we have to rethink when we think about uh, migrant work in Singapore. Any thoughts about that? Just, just really quickly, just to, I'll, I'll just share what we see in the U.S. I've been looking at the fatality maps. They are almost exactly based on where people live in crowded housing. Um, if you look in Los Angeles, for instance, most of the deaths have taken place in East L.A., South L.A., in poor communities where people, which have the most crowded housing in the United States, if you go to west of Los Angeles um, in the San Fernando Valley, very low rates. So I think when I read about what was happening in Singapore with the migrant workers, I, I assume you're seeing similar things in with migrant workers in, in parts of the Middle East. And, and I know in France, um, the, 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 uh, the worst uh, experiences have been in, in, the, uh, 
in, in, in the immigrant communities. And I know that's also the case in Sweden. So I think what's happened, what happened in Singapore is something that we see other countries too. Really good thing in Singapore, we've had very, very little fatality among migrant workers, though a lot of infection. Uh, any other thoughts about, any comments about uh, this broader view about migrant workers and in the broader discussion about diversity? Uh, Professor Alami, oh, Ambassador, yeah, go ahead. You're muted, uh, Ambassador, yeah. You know, we... Singapore, uh, we develop at a rapid pace. You know, we our urban planning, our our development, uh, we did it in such a short period of time. And uh, of course, we need people, you know, to do all this. And of course, the policy of uh, taking in a lot of foreign workers. But of course, there's a lag, a lag between uh, getting in these uh, migrant workers and policies that uh, should have come into action, you know, to make sure that the migrant workers are well taken care of. And of course, this is all economics. You know, you do this, which means that, you know, uh, it has an economic impact on projects and so on. So I thought uh, there's a, we're kind of blindsided by that, you know, and um, I think the COVID, the blessing in disguise is that it kind of wake up call and uh, we, we are now trying to manage it better. And I think things are getting uh, better. But I think more importantly is uh, regardless of, you know, uh, physical conditions, which are important, but I think the respect that we give to them, you know, as, as human beings, you know, uh, how we respect and we value foreign workers, whether they are just laborers, you know, working up in the hot sun, how do we, how do we Singaporeans respect them and uh, to respect the dig their dignity as human beings, you know. So I thought it's something which uh, I think we need to learn as a society and this is very much part of the culture of inclusivity, not only amongst locals with foreigners, not only with the, the haves, you know, but with everybody else in society. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you overseas Singaporeans, this was the most embarrassing thing that I was embarrassed to be a Singaporean, to hear about dual classes of residents. It, 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 was, it was shocking. Um, and so I think Singapore, if Singapore is concerned about the global brand, I've been very, very positive about how Singapore can go out. This was a real black eye and it needs to be fixed. And, and I hope that the whole Singapore adaptability, flexibility will understand that we do not want to be known in the world as a society that has different classes of residents, some of which can live like an underclass and, and, and others who, who are given CPF. This is uh, not a good look for Singapore. Any final comments on the migrant issue? I'll just um, say something about this in terms of, you know, we, 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 I think the government has gotten a lot of flack, a lot of flack for this. Um, and rightly so, because I think there must be uh, improvements in policy regulation and whatnot. But I, it's also important, I think, to 
turn the lens back to, to society and to understand that a lot of the housing issues that the migrant workers face came out because there were you know, complaints from Singaporeans to move these migrant workers away from their housing estates, uh, whether it's public and private. I mean, you still remember, you know, 2008 Serangoon Gardens where, where the government tried to use an old school to, to house um, a thousand migrant workers, uproar, right, among the private uh, housing residents there, right? So this is not in my backyard, NIMBY kind of uh, attitude, I uh, have to go. Uh, it, it has to go because, you know, it is against integration and it's not about, you know, it's, it's, it's disrespectful right, to, 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 to echo uh, ambassadors' words, yeah. I think it's a great place to, to end. I think this call of respect for the diversity that we have, whether it's the diversity comes with immigration, diversity of people with different social backgrounds, religion, race. I think that if, if we can have build in us a DNA, which really is here, but I think has to be from time to time tweaked and strengthened, uh, will go a long way as a, a strong, cohesive society, despite the fact that that it's very important for us to have allow for a plethora of identities to be present in our country. With that, let me thank all our, our panelists who have given their time, really appreciate them for giving us very, very insightful thoughts. And I'm sure you'll probably agree with that. So join me in. Let's uh, thank all our panelists for a very, very helpful session. Thank you, all of you. Uh, we've come to the end of, we've come to the end of this session. I just want to mention some quick housekeeping matters that uh, the session has been recorded. And uh, if you'd like to uh, review the recordings of it, you can go to the contents page and you'll be able to, to watch all the previous sessions, this session and the ones before that. Um, there's another session coming up at 4 p.m. today, Singapore time on technology and livability. It's been a great session. Thank you very much all for joining us and also appreciate all the many good questions that many of you have raised up. And we're sorry we couldn't answer all of them, but uh, thank you for posing those questions. Thank you.